This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. In this UK Coaching podcast, I speak to Professor of Organisational Psychology, author and podcaster Damien Hughes. In our discussion, we explore humility and vulnerability, where Damien explains what they are and shares examples of how they can impact on a coaching culture. It was such an enjoyable discussion with Damien. I hope you enjoy listening and considering what the key messages mean for you in your coaching environment. We join the conversation just as I ask Damien about why he does what he does. I think it's to make a positive difference in uh, every situation that I'm in. Um, I've got um, a few what I term as trademark or non-negotiable behaviours, Tom, and uh, these are often born around from our own experiences, our own um, occasions where we get put on our backside and then have to reflect a little bit about life. Uh, and I think one of them is the idea of uh, being kind. Um, so being kind to yourself and then being kind to others. I think that's an important capacity on some of the stuff we'll talk about. The second one is this idea of, uh, of, uh, of having fun. Because I think that when you think back to occasions where you've learned the most in your life, inevitably you've been laughing and having fun at the same time, that leads to absorption. But it's the third one that answers the why bit is uh, about making a positive difference in every interaction. My dad used to say to me when I was a kid, he said, if, uh, if your absence uh, wouldn't be noticed, your presence hasn't made a difference. And it's almost that idea of in any situation you go into, offer something try to offer something of value. Um, so that's a big driver for me. So that informs a lot of the work that I do, whether that's uh, consulting with teams, whether that's writing books, whether that's um, uh, lecturing. Um, it's about trying to make a positive difference to help people. Fantastic. Amazing. I, I heard a quote um, relatively recently. It's an old quote. Right. You can't change the world in a day, but you can change someone's world in a day oh, um, I like that. yeah and it just really stuck with me I, I personally find myself quite impatient sometimes when I'm doing work I want it to be out and published and ready to go and I want to yeah, see yeah. impact immediately but actually understanding that, that that isn't really going to happen but with those things you just said being kind to people making a positive difference actually that can happen with every every conversation that you have yeah and I think and I think when you think about um that sense of why it's about living a life that's authentic and i think when you're clear about well what is it i think it then starts to help you be discerning in the decisions of where you choose to invest your time and your energy like you say we might want things from yesterday and we might be impatient but in every interaction i think if you can ask yourself your own almost uh, gatekeepers to a decision is this being kind can this be a fun engaging activity and is it going to make a positive difference and if the answer to that is no well whatever you do you're going to be somehow uh, inhibited or maybe you're going to be a diluted version of you so the question is show up and be the best version of who you are so answering that question and being clear about it is a powerful first step I, uh, I'd argue yeah absolutely so if if um if they're your non-negotiable behaviors David, what what would you call your your super strengths? Uh, what what are you really? <laughs> oh wow! Um, I'd probably say um, 
I'm, I'm curious. I'm incredibly curious. And I think that then informs uh, the nature of the work that I do. Um, I remember sort of reflecting when I'd left school and thinking, what would my teachers have said about me if I could have gone back and asked them what sort of student was I? And I think if I was honest, they would have said I was a nice lad, but I was a pain in the ass. And But I wasn't a pain in the ass because I was malicious or I was up to no good. It, it was more, um, I was curious. And when I stopped being curious, I, I got bored. So what I realized as, a, as an adult was that I needed to have a variety of activities that kept me curious. So rather than just doing one thing, have a few different things that could stimulate interest that you can dive a bit deeper and do that. So um, I think curiosity uh, is uh, a strength and, uh, and empathy. I think um, I read a lovely quote many years ago by a guy called Bill Bullard that said, opinion is the lowest form of knowledge because it requires no effort. Whereas the highest uh, sign of knowledge is empathy because that requires you to suspend your ego and to step into somebody else's world and try and see it from their perspective. And um, it's something that I deliberately try and work on uh, unconsciously, try and cultivate that idea of being empathetic to other people. My wife has a lovely phrase where sometimes when you come home and you might recount somebody doing something that, that doesn't agree with you, she has a lovely phrase where she says, I would make the same decision if I was them. And the point she means is, if you stepped into their world and understood their experiences, their values, their their shape, formative influences, you would have reached the same decision. That's why they've done it. So rather than judge them and have an opinion, step into their world and try and see it from through their eyes as to why they made that decision. We we recorded a podcast a couple of weeks ago with a guy called Kirk from from Google. And uh, Kirk said something really similar. We were talking about um, how a coach could form really positive relationships with their athletes. And, and we were talking about maybe some challenges we thought barriers to get in the way of that. And, and his turn of phrase was around, well, have you walked a mile in their shoes? Do you, do you understand the world from their point of view and their perspective? I think that's a really important point for people to think about, especially when they're coaching or engaging with other people is how much time are you spending understanding this from their point of view absolutely yeah i think it's it's it, it that's what makes us human the ability to to get out of our own heads and step into somebody else's world behind their eyes and see it and that's why i think when i said about curiosity i think if you come if, if you're curious because you're seeking to understand rather than to reach a conclusion that's a judgment or an opinion on somebody i think that those two things can combine and can be quite powerful. So um, that's why they're, they're two areas that I try to deliberately cultivate and work on. Here's a question. And I knew I knew today, Damien, I've got a plan of things I'd love to talk about. Go on. I, I knew I'd go off peak. <laughs> it's, it's come quicker than I expected. <laughs> Good. That curiosity. Um, from your experience of working with people or yeah. coaches that you you kind of connected and work with, do, do many people ask questions born out of pure curiosity rather than asking with an answer in their mind already? Wow, that's a brilliant question. Um, I would say, I think instinctively, I think most of us 
ask questions because we have an answer in mind and we're looking to confirm what we think we know. Um, and I get that because often we're under pressure, we're, we're time poor, so we're trying to move the conversation on quickly because we have our own objectives. Um, so I'd say the vast majority of coaches in certain contexts will ask questions with an answer in mind. I think when you get most people though in a completely different context, maybe take the pressure away, maybe create a more relaxed or informal environment, I think then people naturally then start to ask questions to understand. So I'd say it's not um, it's not related to the personality, it's often related to the context in which you will see coaches operating in, that they don't have time for a, a long meandering uh, discussion. They'll often be asking questions because they're trying to move people towards uh, a shared objective. So it's a brilliant question, but I think it's more context related rather than individual related. Right, brilliant, brilliant. Um, and then final question for me before we before we well, move on. Um, just on your journey so far, um, is there anything that really stands out as something that you're really proud of? Wow, okay. Uh, yeah, I, um, I, I mean, there's a certain amount where I'm, uh, I'm often reticent to, to want to share that because I'm, I'm conscious that this goes back to my own childhood and I don't want to seem like you're crowing or you're being big-headed about something. So I hope this my answer to this doesn't come across as that. Um, but yeah, I've done a number of books and um, I'm quite proud of them. Um, I've, I've offered a number of books um, and part of the reason is because I, I didn't know what I was doing. If you'd have sat me down when I first decided to write a book and told me how to write a book, I don't think I would have bothered. Uh, it would have appeared too, too hard and difficult to do, but I really didn't have much of a clue as to what I was doing. And therefore, I just set off on a journey of wanting to adopt that curiosity, that empathy, and wanted uh, to write. And I've almost stumbled my way through it, but I feel quite proud I've done. I've done eight different books now that I'm really proud of. Uh, and um, I think it, it, uh, it's that because a lot of what I really appreciate is the work in the shadows, the work that nobody sees. It's not the outcome of the book, it's more the effort, the hard work, the diligence, the application that I think um, really makes me quite proud. That links, I think, really nicely into the kind of our, our topic and our theme where we're going to go today. Um, and your reticence to talk about something you're proud of, perhaps maybe it does link to humility to an extent. Um, and I guess the first thing I wanted to ask about humility in particular, it occurs to me that it must be really hard to spot humility in other people or other coaches, because I guess the people who practice humility really well never really talk about it because that's part and parcel of being humble. Yeah, very much. I think that I think it's such a fascinating topic. Um, I mean, I've been looking up, I've been co-hosting a podcast series called The High Performance Podcast um, with a, a friend and a colleague called Jay Comfrey. Uh, and we, it came out nearly 12 months ago now, Tom. And when people have said to me afterwards, we've, we've been fortunate enough to interview some really uh, impressive people. So like the Oscar winner, Matthew McConaughey, uh, the singer from the Stereophonics, Kelly Jones, Futu, um People like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Frank Lampard, Stephen Gerrard in the sporting world. 
And people will say to me afterwards, like, what are they like when you speak to them? And I think the best quality that I describe them is, they're just like me or you. And I think you can almost say that as a bit of an easy uh, answer to a question, but I actually think that answer contains an awful lot of uh, a power in it. And the point is that they're humble. That the the reason that when you're in the presence of them, you're not thinking. They don't come and throw their weight around. They don't tell you how important they are. They don't share their achievements as if it buys them uh, any extra kudos. They come in and they're they're polite. They're respectful. They make eye contact. They use your name. They uh, they're happy to answer your question. They'll come back at you with questions themselves. And I think that that to me captures it. I'll give you a really neat story about it that. I remember when we met Dylan Hartley, the former England rugby captain, and he was telling us his story. He'd left home from New Zealand at 15. He'd come across to Northampton and then he'd, he'd, he'd learned his craft of playing rugby. And when we asked him questions around that, he was articulate, he was erudite, he was smart and wise. And then we knew that he'd just had his second child and he had two young children. And I asked him about how do you apply some of these principles you learned in rugby to being a parent? And that was a moment where he went, I've got no idea, mate. I, went, I don't know, I'm learning to be a parent. I've never been one before. And I think what that showed in that moment was humility that he didn't think because he'd been the England captain and he'd been decorated and all of that, that conferred on him wisdom that he could apply to any domain. He knew where his expertise stopped. And then he, he was curious enough to, uh, to ask questions and to try and understand it. And I think that's an important characteristic that I've I've come to understand humility as three stages um, and, and it's almost a mindset. So it's not going on social media, standing in front of a big posh house and telling people how humble and down to earth you are or, or <laughs> surrounding yourself with bling and telling everyone that you're just like them. I don't think it's about a meme or a cliche. I think it's very much a mindset. And what I've identified is there's three stages to developing a mindset of humility. I think the first stage that we all have to pass through is what I dub peak idiot stage. And peak idiot stage is almost where you've got high levels of confidence based on relatively little knowledge or experience. So the easiest way of articulating this is, it's like when you sat with somebody watching a game of sport on TV and they're telling you what decisions they'd make or how they would have done a better job or when you see programs like X Factor or Britain's Got Talent, in those early stages where people show up and say, oh, I'm going to sing like Mariah Carey, and they sound like a cat being strangled. That's where your thinking stops at peak idiot stage because you think you don't understand the craft of what you're doing to appreciate how far away from good you are. But I think that we all have to pass through that stage. And then the stage two is where I dub it as the valley of humility. And this is where this is almost defined by your curiosity by asking questions, by being open-minded, by looking at things from different perspectives. And I think there's a great phrase that I sometimes use with, um, with, with young athletes where I say, your ability to be good at something depends on how long you're prepared to be at it for. And this is where, how long are you prepared to spend in this valley of humility of making mistakes, learning, asking questions, being patient, looking at the process rather than the outcome. And I think the longer you spend there, the third stage where you get to is what I define as the hill of knowledge. This is where you've got a level of understanding about your craft. 
but you're never afraid to go back into the valley to find out more to then take it back up onto that hill of knowledge and expertise so those three stages uh when i think about it in that way when we talk about humility you can often find out where somebody is on it when somebody so like i've met people in business that because they maybe have been successful entrepreneurs then pronounce on politics or pronounce on sport or pronounce on subjects outside of their their knowledge of domain but talk about it with such confidence and assurance that they almost don't recognize they're stuck in peak idiot stage when it comes to that particular topic but they're blind to it because they think that their their expertise transfers across uh, to all other domains i love the three stages um, i think that, <laughs> that kind of helps me um frame it and and kind of and, and i think if i'm working with another coach or, or talking to someone else i'm trying to work out how humble they are perhaps in every conversation i'm, I'm having but i think that's a really nice uh, indicator perhaps of, of where they might be as a person and as a development coach is listening to what you're saying yeah. i sense a lot of um a lot of this around humility has there's a big part to play in self-awareness so understanding myself as a coach and where my strengths lie and understanding that I guess in coaching it's complex and, and you're never going to complete coaching. If I'm working with someone else and perhaps they're 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 closer towards peak idiot than they are to the <laughs> is there anything that, that coaches within your team or people that you work with can do to to help you recognize where you might be at and almost a, a shift from one to the other? Or does that does that just come from within? I think it's both and, so I don't think it's either or, so I think it's a brilliant question, but I think it's both and uh, in my experience of that. I think you need a, a level of self-awareness to know what you don't know. So this taps into the Dunning-Kruger law. So the Dunning-Kruger law that some coaches, I'm sure listening to this, are familiar with the two guys from Cornell University, Dunning and Kruger, that said, if you're good at something, you can articulate why you're good at it. If you're bad at something, you've got no idea why you're bad at it. And I think, so th that comes from self-awareness, but also as coaches, we can help people do that and get them to explain, how did you achieve peak performance? When you were good, why were you good? So I use a really simple technique uh, to try and do this when I work with teams, because I tend to work with teams or work with coaches and help them do with their teams. And the question I ask them, I, so I dub the exercise success leaves clues. So you start the conversation and say, when you're good, why are you good? Now, I allow them to set the parameters of what good looks like. So it might be your best game. It might be your best season. It might be your best 10 minutes. It almost doesn't matter. Whatever you define as the parameters. My first question is, so why were you good? Let's break it down and let's try and get a collective understanding of what good looks like. And then you can, and then from that, perspective you can then say so now how do we then create a culture where being good becomes the standard those those factors that enabled us to deliver peak performance how do we build a culture that enables that to be the standard that we train to that we observe and in pretty much every practice so it's like the old military saying that when you come under pressure you don't rise to the performance you descend to your level of training so that idea of how do you create an environment where that is the level of training 
that, um, that uh, that's our standard. I'll give you I'll, I'll give you an example again that comes from the podcast series. That December twenty nineteen, we were uh, scheduled um, to do some interviews for it, and we were based in the northern quarter in Manchester. Now, if anyone's listening to this that knows it, there's often it's like a rabbit war in the streets and things like that. We we're in a studio that wasn't the easiest place to find, and it was cold, it was wet, it was raining. And uh, our first appointed interview time was 10 o'clock, right? 10 to 10 that morning, there's a knock on the door. I go to the door, I open it, and standing outside is Chris Hoy. Now, I've never met Chris before, so I sort of introduced myself and welcomed him in. I'm getting him a cup of tea, and we're just making small talk. And I very casually said to him, oh, by the way, thanks for coming here early, Chris. It just means the rest of the day goes really smoothly. And he was affronted. And it was like, oh, this is an interesting response I'm getting here. So we sort of, so it was like a thread on an old jump away. Think I'll pull this and see what happens. And um, I was saying to him, there was no offence intended, Chris, but wondering why did you seem to bristle at that? And he was like, well, the way he explained it was, he went, we've arranged to meet at ten o'clock. And he said, if I was to show up late, that would indicate that I think my time is more important than yours. So by definition, that would. There's an assumption somewhere in my head that I'm more important than you are. And he went, that's just unthinkable. He said, we've arranged to be at 10 o'clock, 10 to 10 is the minimum. Now, when we spoke to him later on in the interview about, about um, his non-negotiable behaviours, he could rhyme them off like that. He just went, humility, respect, commitment. Now, in that one anecdote of him showing up at 10 minutes before an appointed time, he's got the humility not to think that his status of being Britain's greatest Olympian confers him any advantages. He's respectful of other people's time and he does what he says he will do. There's commitment in a nutshell. Now, I frequently go back to that because I think when he was in the velodrome about to race, like in the men's kilo for the gold medal, does those behaviours of respect, humility and hard work help him to... Uh, to go for gold. Well, I'd argue, of course it does. The, but they're not an occasional thing. They're not things that he practices when he's turning up for work. That's an everyday thing. Even in the little anecdote, like, I've raised me at 10 o'clock for an interview, I'm going to be there early because it's just, that's the standard that becomes that when he's under pressure, that's what you see. That's the standard that he performs to. And I think that's where it goes back to this idea of Success leaves clues. When you're good at something, try and understand and break it down in that valley of humility. Why am I good at it? So I can get beyond peak idiot stage of hoping to get lucky. And I can go back to those component parts. When I don't win, I don't blame other external factors. I go back to what did I not do? What What is it that I didn't show up and demonstrate that I can put into place next time to get me uh, into a better position? Uh, what, what an interesting story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, I, in, in a previous role, I uh, met a fantastic athlete called Heather O'Reilly, who she, she's won the World Cup for the US national team and she's got Olympic gold medals. In terms of women's football, she's kind of been there, done that, got the T-shirt. And Heather would always say, if you're on time, you're late. And, and it's interest, interesting that she she lived and breathed that whether she was coming to uh make an appearance at a primary school if if she was rocking up for the first team training session or whatever it was 
it was just part of her her mantra and her, her mindset. Yeah, and but but that's been a really interesting trait from like on all the interviews that we've done. When you if if you're looking for common ground, timekeeping is huge for all of them. Whether that's um, Sean Dice when we met him, his was about timekeeping and about shaking hands and being respectful because it indicates that I don't think I'm better than you, but I'm, I've got the respect to introduce myself. Tracy Neville was like, if you're not, exactly that, if you're on time, you're late. When we spoke to her, which was the whole culture that she sought to introduce with the, the England Roses. Um, these are just non-negotiable things that I think tell you an awful lot about somebody and their own values and therefore their non-negotiable behaviors in action. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm not surprised that you've got that experience because that's been common to uh, my experience of um, of elite performers as well. So, in a minute, we'll, we'll move on to kind of vulnerability and talk a little bit a little bit about what what that means and and what yeah. What looks like. In, ter- in terms of humility, though, and I think vulnerability probably falls in, into the same bracket for this question. Are they are they skills that coaches can almost identify? And improve, or are they things which just are you either you've got it or you haven't? Wow! Again, it's a really it's a really fascinating question. I think you're asking there, Tom. And I think the answer is that I think some people will start with an advantage that they do have a propensity to feel that their self esteem is robust enough that they can be vulnerable and not feel uh, that it's going to impacts on that self-esteem. So I think some of that will come from their early experiences. But I think relating it to a team environment as coaches, the simplest barometer that I often get coaches um, to just start to observe when they think about vulnerability and humility in their team is say, what happens when you ask a question to the room? So when you've got a team meeting, what happens when you throw a question into the room? Because I hear so many coaches will say to me, you know what, it's frustrating that they sit there in silence or, you know, we don't get anything back or it's the same voices again. And my answer to those coaches is that silence should be deafening you because you're getting feedback. And the feedback tells you one of two factors is missing in that room, safety or trust. That the idea of admitting vulnerability and putting your hand up and saying, I don't understand this game plan. I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm... I'm confused as to how uh, how I apply this. In that moment where somebody raises their hand, they're making themselves vulnerable. Now, to make yourself vulnerable, you have to be confident there's a psychological safety in that meeting room that nobody's going to snipe you or laugh at you or you're not going to be responded to and made to feel ridiculous for admitting that vulnerability. And the second thing is, when they do ask that question, how you handle it as a coach is key because they're presenting you with the opportunity to build a relationship of trust. Are you gonna handle that in a discreet, sensitive, responsible manner? Or are you gonna act frustrated, roll your eyes, fill it in? So the simplest barometer of knowing whether vulnerability and humility is happening in the room is have a look at how many questions are being asked towards your coaches. Have a look at what you do when you pose a question to the room, do you fill it with your own answer remarkably quickly. Guess what? I sometimes do that with coaches where I sit and time how long it takes them to answer their own question. Because I read a study years ago that suggested that when teachers do this, the gap between asking a question and answering it 
for the worst teachers was about 0.9 of a second. So the way I viewed it there was, if you're a teacher and you're asking a question and answering it, your teaching style is, guess what's in my head? Hmm. So what you're trying to do is take my knowledge and transfer it to somebody else's, whereas the best teachers are happy with that silence. They allow that silence to settle and then get people to ask questions. And then it's the, it's their follow-up that where the real coaching magic starts to take place. Yeah, I can see that. So I guess you mentioned self-esteem as being something that perhaps having good levels of self-esteem afford an opportunity for people to feel like they can be vulnerable, can be vulnerable and can show a level of vulnerability. Is there anything that a coach can do within the environment that they operate that um, encourages people to be able to take a risk, to ask the question, to try something uh, in a game where, where perhaps it's a high risk strategy. Um, what kind of behaviors always come from a coach to encourage that to happen? Yeah, I, again, really interesting. Um, and this is a question that I've, I've sort of wrestled with a lot uh, over the years. I can give you some really practical like, solutions that I've come up with. Some of them have worked better than others, but a really simple one that uh, I sometimes um, get coaches to do with players that are particularly anxious about making mistakes is give them a give them a target of mistakes that they have to make. So say for example, in rugby, I remember doing some work years ago and there was a there was a, an attacking player that was particularly anxious. And the coaches said to him, we want you making at least five mistakes each half. And if you're not, that would indicate that you're not taking risks, you're not playing on the edge, you're not you're not trying to create something, you're playing it safe. And in your role, we need you taking risks. So they actually gave them targets of mistakes to make because they worked on that ratio of if you're making five mistakes, chances are you're going to try at least five occasions and one of them might come off. So it's almost that idea of incentivize them uh, in terms of making mistakes is a bit, I've seen it work quite effectively, but again, context is key on this, Tom, that it would depend on the position that they have on the field. If you've got someone in a defensive position, you're probably not rewarding them for that so much. Um, that's one idea. I've seen um, something where coaches come in and admit their own errors. So after after um, after game in, uh, in game review, uh, come in and admit where they got it wrong. And I think what that does is that unconsciously gives permission to everybody else to admit that they didn't do their job right or admit errors that they've made. So I think sometimes coaches doing that. Another nice way is I sometimes, when I work with professional coaches, get them to, I say, prepare. I remember reading a quote years ago from Gerard Houllier, the football manager, who said the most important five minutes in a, in a manager's week is when you stand in front of the TV cameras after the game because everybody's eyes are watching on what you say. And that prompted me to come up with an idea when coaches have said, prepare your press, prepare your comments after the game before the game has even taken place. And some coaches go, sorry, what do you mean by that? I say, well, you know there's only one or three outcomes to what's about to happen. You're going to win, you're going to lose, you're going to draw. Now, if you're going to stand in front of those cameras and you're going to react emotionally to the outcome, so you get beat and you stand there and you blame the refereeing decision. You go into the team room on Monday morning and try and get players to take accountability. You've made your job harder because 
you've already given them the excuse. It wasn't our fault. It was a referee. So if you can prepare what you want to do, you should be thinking longer term. You should be thinking next week or how this fits within the wider cultural approach that you're trying to take. So your comments should never be responding with emotion. It should always be measured as to the plan that you want to have. So again, that can be another way of, um, of not outsourcing blame, but taking accountability and making it an internal process. So there are three very quick ways about giving people errors to make, admitting your own faults and avoiding excuses in terms of in, uh, in the way that you review a game afterwards. Amazing examples, um, really clear framework for coaches to maybe think about what that could look like in their context as well. Um, I think the first two really stood out for me, almost that coaches setting some targets around mistakes, being quite explicit with with the athlete that they're working with around what the expectation is. It feels a little bit like, um, and you have to bear with me on the metaphor. Um, it could be it could be that 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 message is it's, it's almost like the rain. It's top down. It's the coach just admitting their own mistakes and maybe things that have gone wrong with them could be almost at the, at the root. It's not necessarily as obvious and people, it's more implicit perhaps, but has an equal impact on the terrain as the rain would. Uh, all, all feeds into our environment. I did some work with the coach and, and I'd worked with him for a few years and our relationship was such that I often felt I was getting paid to do nothing because it was often... Uh, validating what he was doing rather than having to intervene or anything like that. And we went through this one season um, and we played a big playoff game at the end of the season, right? And the whole philosophy was about taking risks, playing off the cuff, being creative in our style of play. And we got to the semi-final of this playoff, right? And we were in it, it was neck and neck with our rivals. And in the very last minute, one of our players took a risk and threw the ball out from behind his back to try and create a play. And the opposition picked the ball up, ran 80 yards and scored a try and knocked us out, right? So the whole stadium is just deflated. We're all stood there, the season's at an end in the most dispiriting way possible. And I think I got paid that season for the five minutes that followed. And, 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 and I hope this doesn't sound like self-aggrandizing because that's not my point. But all I did was I said to the coach said, because the, the the emotions were running high and I said to the head coach, what are you going to do now? And he was raging about this reckless pass that the player had done. And I said to him, please don't say anything when you go into the dressing room. Send them home. Everyone's raw and emotive. Send them home and we'll do a review tomorrow, which is what he did. Now, I didn't explain any more than that, but what my thinking was, was if that coach would have gone in in that moment of heightened emotion, and let rip for the mistake that this player had made in that last minute. The 18 months that we'd spent prior to this would have just been thrown out in that moment because his whole philosophy had been about taking risks. And if he'd have gone in there and lambasted this guy for taking a risk, he would have added a really subtle coder that would have said, take risks as long as you know it comes off, which by definition stops it being a risk. And my worry was in the emotion of the moment, he would have said something that would have unraveled 18 months worth of messages that have been done. So it was just a case of go away, send everybody home, don't say anything, just say, we're all hurting at the moment. Let's come back tomorrow and review it. And once that had settled, the answer to his coach was obvious. He, that he was like, yeah, 
you're right, we, we would never have said that because we ended up being successful for the next couple of years based on this philosophy. And it was a seminal moment. But I think that was when I have to say, I got paid for a whole season for that five minutes because I think it was it was critical in terms of the culture that was trying to do it. And I didn't offer that much other than just say, let's just stay calm and give ourselves a bit of time to reflect on this. But I think understanding how you as coaches respond to mistakes is really key is the kind of culture that you get. If you're expressing dismay, rolling your eyes, things like that, when people have done it with the right intention, that undermines subtly a culture of vulnerability and humility and by definition learning. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think that's a, bri a brilliant explanation and I just highlight how every interaction between a coach and an athlete all feeds into the environment, to the culture. Um, and any gesture, big or small, sends a message and a signal to the athletes around the coach. There's no, you cannot not communicate. There is no, there is no interaction that you have that is neutral. It either adds or takes away. If you think of it in that way, there's very few actions that are neutral in their response. So as a coach, you think, are you adding or are you taking away in this moment? Like what, like what value, like that maybe is a handy question sometimes. So what value do you think that is, is having? So I'm doing some work at the moment with the team. And the head coach here is in his first head coach's position. And it's lovely to see him that when we did the first meeting, there was a couple of players, like when some of the younger boys spoke up, some of the older players started sniggering. And I was so relieved that my friend, who's the head coach in this case, intervened. And he was like, I'm sorry, this is a non-negotiable in our culture. When somebody's speaking, you're not sat behind them, taking a piss and laughing. And, because even if you're not laughing at them, it feels like you are, and you're just eroding the vulnerability, the, the, the psychological safety that's in this group. If we can't come and be honest with each other in this room, there's no, we might as well give up now. And it was such a, and I was really moved when my friend made that intervention because it was just such a powerful statement as a coach of, it was in one of the first meetings, that's just unacceptable in this room. And as we've gone through in pre-season, I think the response of players has been really interesting. The players are starting to come and start sharing quite deep personal stories in that environment. But I think the courage to do that was sown, the seed was sown three months ago when the head coach made that intervention in his very first meeting of, you don't sit and make comments while anybody else is talking. Fantastic, great story. Um, I think that could probably resonate with a lot, a lot of environments are kind of the coaches listening, perhaps as being part of or being a coach or a player. Um, David, thank you so much for, for the last kind of 35, 40 minutes or so. Shared has been fantastic and I'm sure the coaches listening will be able to take loads out of this and think about what it means in their own coaching context. Um, I, I've got a couple of questions and I'm just going to ask one, I think, from oh. who, um, who kind of listen, listen to the podcast of kind of shared knowing that you were coming on as a guest. So my friend Fletch, um, <laughs> it's a simple question. Uh, he said, we're going on a three day trip. Uh, where would we go and who would we see? <laughs> wow, brilliant. Oh, wow, that's a good one. Um, so I'm, I'm from Manchester um, and um, my background is shaped uh, by two sports and influences in Manchester, Tom. So, uh, um, I grew up in a boxing gym 
So my dad was a boxing coach. So most of my seminal experiences were in um, were in the gym there. So we'd go and visit uh, my childhood background there and go and see that. I think that's a nice way of sometimes just connecting yourself to those values. The other sporting influence would be Manchester United. So then we'd, uh, we'd travel to go and see Manchester United. I think what attracted me about Manchester United is I like the story of my, um, I was really fortunate when I was a kid growing up, um, Jimmy Murphy, who was Sir Matt Busby's assistant, used to come in the boxing gym because him and my dad were friends. And uh, my dad used to say, so go and ask him about Duncan Edwards, go and ask him about Dennis Law, go and ask him about all these seminal characters. And I used to sit there and he'd tell me about Busby and tell me stories and things like that. And, and I love the origins of uh, the Manchester United story now. So I love that Matt Busby had this sense of purpose. It was about entertaining working people. Yeah, and I, I like the fact that Ferguson came in and used Busby's blueprint. He had three three non-negotiable behaviours at Manchester United that that Busby laid down. The first one was relentlessness. That we we take we we go for the win. We play to win, not play not to lose. The second one was courage, about taking risks and being vulnerable and making things happen. The courage to put your hand up and take responsibility. And the third one was you be a team player. You represent the team and everything it stands for. So I love that because I think again, it so it's not just about Manchester United, it's about the values and seeing something that, that's endured for that amount of time. So that'd be day one. Uh day two, we'd fly over to Detroit. Um this was a really sick yeah, I've done a few different books, um, uh, biographies on uh fighters because of my background and uh I went out, um, I, uh, I did a biography on, the, on a boxer called Thomas Hearns. Uh, he was like a five-weight world champion. Um, so he's um, one of his contemporaries, Marvin Hagler. I did another book on him, passed away this weekend. But when I went out to the Cronk Boxing Gym in Detroit, um, that was regarded as a greenhouse of coaching talent. Uh, the Cronk Gym produced something like 30 world champions in a 25-year period. And I was fortunate enough to go out there to research the Hearns biography. And I met the head coach there, a man called Manny Stewart, who's passed away now. But Manny Stewart gave me a great lesson on emotional intelligence when we're talking about vulnerability. This was quite an intimidating, very alpha male environment going into it. And I was conscious that I was walking in there as a white English lad uh, in a predominantly black neighborhood uh, and things like that. And you know the behaviour that was that stood out for me out of all of it, Tom, was kindness, kindness and respect out of all of them. So we'd go there because um, because of that uh, impact in terms of what that could teach us. We'd go and visit the Cronk Gym and see how you can be in a tough sport, but it doesn't mean that you have to behave like a tough guy in many ways. And then um, finally, I think we would go. Uh, this is an interesting one. We go out to Canberra. Um, I was fortunate enough, I did some work with uh, the Canberra Raiders and the head coach out there, Ricky Stewart. So from a coaching perspective, we'd come visit them and go and see how this is a guy who has been incredibly successful in his coaching career, but he values culture. He sees culture as his, as his secret competitive advantage. And I've been fortunate enough to know Ricky a long time and work with him. but. Uh, I'd, uh, I'd go and spend some time there. So from a coaching point of view, 
uh, Manchester for my origins and my roots, Detroit for uh, one of the biggest lessons it taught me, and then Canberra to go and see how all these things have been applied in practice. Amazing answer. Um, after we finish recording, if you just let me know the date, and then uh, I'll put it in the diary for us to, to have. Yeah, yeah, we'll do it. Yeah, no problem. We'll go first class as well. We'll treat ourselves. Happy days. Well, why not? <laughs> David, it's been a pleasure to talk to you uh, this morning. Uh, thank you so much for your time, and um, wishing you lots of luck with the High Performance Podcast. I'll be be kind of eagerly waiting for the next episode, and oh, um, speaking again. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. I appreciate that you know, there's an awful lot of time, energy and investment that you put into this. And uh, um, I am humbled that you invited me on and appreciate your incisive questions and giving me the space to think and answer. So thank you very much. Join us at ukcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you. 